Well, redwood trees are some of the largest living things on earth. They can grow to over 300 feet tall, and some of them are over 2,000 years old. Now, you would think that trees as large as this would have a a root system that would go deep, deep into the ground, but the the root system of a redwood tree is actually relatively shallow. Uh, What allows them to grow to the size and magnitude they do is that their roots are intertwined and interconnected with other redwood trees around them. It's nearly impossible to tell where the roots of one begins and another one ends. They draw life and support from the trees around them. Now, if a tree is by itself, uh, it doesn't last very long because it can't sustain itself in a severe storm. It'll be blown over, and it won't grow uh, to the size that we're used to seeing these trees as well. What these trees do, I think, is give us a great picture of what the life of a believer and those of us in a church should look like. Because alone, we're limited in growth, and it's hard to stand when the storm winds of life blow. But if we're connected, if we're in community with one another, not only will we find support in trying times, but it will also stretch and grow us. And we'll find that individually our our talents, our time, our abilities and things will be multiplied uh, well beyond what we could do individually. So we turn in our Bible today to the second part of Acts chapter 2. What we're going to see are some of the marks of Christian community. We're going to see what our lives and our church should look like. One of the signs of being in the body of Christ is being baptized into that body. Right there in Acts 2.41, it tells us, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, you'll recall last week, uh, we left off talking about baptism. And our English word, baptism, comes from the Greek word, baptizo. And baptizo means to immerse. It was used of a cloth that would be dipped into dye. And as the the cloth went under the water, uh, it would take on the characteristic, that color. It would be dyed with the color. So the the idea of baptism, being baptized into Christ, uh, it's not only a picture of what has happened with us. Just as Jesus was buried in the tomb and he rose from the dead three days later, when we baptize somebody in the next service, we're going to be baptizing four individuals. And if you're here in the service, you'll look up in that window and you'll see the individual there and they'll, they'll go under the water. And then when they come up, uh, it's a sign of coming up in newness of life. Just as Jesus was buried in the tomb and rose from the dead three days later, we as believers are identifying with what Jesus did. We're not washing away their sins in the water. That's already happened through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, When he was crucified on the cross, he washed away our sins by his blood. It is through his blood that we're forgiven. Uh, But when we're baptized, we're identifying ourselves with Christ and what he did. This is what Peter was speaking about in the sermon that ended in Acts 2.36 that we looked at last time. As we saw, he said in verses 37 through 38, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? He had recounted the life of Christ and what he did and how he was crucified. And and they're saying, we recognize we rejected him as the Messiah. What do we need to do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word repent, as we've talked about before, means to have a a change of mind that leads to a change of action. The word repentance literally means to recognize you're going in the wrong direction, to stop, 
to turn around and go in the other direction. In the case of Peter's sermon, they recognized they, they were wrong. They had rejected the promised Messiah, Jesus. And, and now recognizing he was who he said he was, the Son of God who came to save them. What Peter said is instead, you need to stop running away from him, turning your back on, on the Messiah, Jesus, and you need to turn around and come to his arms that are open wide. Not because they're still nailed to the cross, but because he's waiting to receive you, to offer you forgiveness for your sins when you turn from your sins and to him as your Savior. Now, as they did this, uh, this is what verse 38 is saying when it says, Repent. And then it says, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, this part of the verse has created confusion for some. Because when it says, be baptized, some read this verse to say you are to repent and be baptized in order to be saved. That it's a a two-part process that has to be activated. It's like a ticket that you tear in half that says void if detached. And they're saying, well, the faith alone doesn't do it. You also have to have baptism with it. Let me get technical just for a moment here to help you see what we're dealing with. The Greek word that is being used here is ace. And it's connected in the sentence with the accusative State. Now, all that's going, you just lost me, Roger. Stay with me. If, if you have this preposition with an accusative, what it means is on account of, on the basis of, or because of. These are the meanings that are attached to it. And what we're reading here is it says here in this verse we just read, if you want, you can turn to Matthew 3.11 or just look at this slide because this same preposition is used with the accusative form in this sentence. And it says there in Matthew 3.11, as for me, this is John the Baptist speaking, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. There it is, for, ace, repentance. But he, this is Jesus, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, something we talked about last week. Now, no one who has ever read this verse uh, reads for repentance there to say that it is the water that caused the repentance of the person. What everybody says is those who were being baptized had already repented of their sins, And as a sign of their repentance, they were getting in the water with John and being baptized. Now, I want to remind you that right after this, Jesus himself was baptized by John the Baptist. And again, nobody has ever said Jesus was a sinner who needed to turn from his sins in repentance. He was the Son of God. He was perfect. Jesus was being baptized by John not because he was a sinner and needed to repent. Now, if that's the case, why was Jesus being baptized? Well, we find the answer in Matthew three fourteen through 15. There it says, but John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering him said, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You see, what Jesus was doing was identifying. Baptism is a mark of identification. Jesus was identifying with the call to repentance that John the Baptist was calling people to. Uh, The water didn't cause them to repent. It was because of or on the basis of their repentance that they went into the water. And as we're reading here in Acts, it's not telling us that the water is what is saving us. What it says is believers go into the baptismal waters because they've repented. 
on the basis of their newness of life, on account of the gift of salvation. This is what we're reading about here. Now, if the Greek grammar here is confusing to you, one of the foundational principles of Bible study, there's two foundational principles you can remember. One is you always read a passage in the context. Anybody can cherry-pick a verse out of the context and make it say whatever you want. So you always look at it in the context. We're reading the book of Acts. In a moment, I'm going to show you several verses in the book of Acts that deal with salvation. The second thing you always do is you interpret an unclear passage, a verse that seems confusing by those that are very clear. Uh, So here we go through Acts. Next week, we're going to be looking at uh, Peter has another sermon that we're going to come to. But in Acts 2.21, what we looked at the previous week, it said, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you remember that? It was based on belief, not belief in baptism that you're saved. When you look at Acts 3.19, the very next sermon that Peter preaches, if he were saying here that baptism is necessary for salvation, you would think that he would repeat that in his next sermon. But he says, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. In Acts 10.43, he says, through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Again, not belief in baptism. Now, there is no clearer place in the Bible where the question is asked. In Acts 16.30, it says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And as you look at the very next verse, Acts 16.31, it says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. It doesn't say believe and be baptized. Now, as you keep reading, you see the Philippian jailer and his family who had come to faith uh, are then baptized, again, as a sign of identification of their new faith, of this inward change. It's an outward uh, sign. I'm wearing a wedding ring. Does this wedding ring make me married? No. There are people who are married who do not wear a wedding ring. Now, I don't advise that. If I were to take this ring off, I may not last long with my wife. Uh, But the ring itself does not make me married. But everybody who sees the ring knows I'm married. And that's what baptism is. Baptism is a sign that we are saved. And so it is not something that is needed to save us. Now, another sign of, of uh, another external sign that should be seen in our life uh, for those who have been identified with Christ is found in verses 42 through 47 in Acts chapter 2. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, in Acts 1.14, we saw this word, proskiteraeo. And this this word we saw meant prayer. But it was speaking of how they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. As we're reading here in Acts, this is the same word that is used. What it says is they were continually devoting themselves. That word means literally to be busy or persistent in activity. And what we see is they were, they were persistent in a number of things. Acts 2.42 says they were continually devoting themselves. And then it says to the apostles' teaching, 
to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, one day there was a, a mayor of a small town. He was sitting in his office, and he's, he's looking out the window of his office, and he sees a couple of uh, street department workers coming down the street. And one of the men, the, the truck stops, they get out. One man digs this hole, and the other man that is there with him then fills the hole back in. And they go about, they get back in the truck, they drive about 20 feet up the street, on, they get out again, they dig another hole, and the second man fills the hole back in. Now the mayor is sitting there looking out his window going, what is going on? And after he sees this happen a, a, another time or two, he comes walking out of his office and he goes over to where these, these city workers are on the median. And, and the man had just finished digging a hole and the other guy filled it in and he's patting the dirt around. And the mayor says, I'm sorry, what are you guys doing? And they said, oh, hi, Mr. Mayor. He said, they said, we, we work for the, the city here. He says, yes, I know that. He says, what are you guys doing? They said, well, we're on the tree planting detail. And he said, you see, um, my job is to dig the hole. And then there's another guy, uh, but he's sick today, and he didn't come in. And the third guy says very proudly, well, you know, we figured just because he wasn't going to be able to come to work, we could still do our job. And he says, well, what is your job? He says, well, I fill in the hole after the tree's planted. Now, I tell you that story because uh, these guys were going through the motions. They were doing their jobs, weren't they? One guy's job was to dig the hole. Another guy's job was to fill in the hole. But they were missing the middleman, the guy who put the tree in the hole. And they said, but we're still doing our job. And I'm afraid sometimes as Christians we're like that, aren't we? We read a passage like this and we say, you know, I'm doing my job. Uh, I'm with the program. I'm doing what God wants. I, I come to church, give a little bit of money in the plate. I volunteer my time occasionally. But I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, that some of us are just going through the motions. And we've lost sight of the real purpose. You see, God is not uh, interested in the activity. As he tells us, they were continually devoting themselves to something. He's not excited that they were busy uh, doing church. What he was doing was calling them to be the church. To be those churches you've heard me say before is not about rules or ritual. It's about a relationship. A personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we're looking in the context of what the church, individual believers who belong to Christ are to be doing as they come together in community, he's talking about the relationship that we're to have with one another. It comes through fellowship. And this Greek word that is used here is koinonia. And the word is translated as fellowship, but it literally means shared or to have in common. And we see that the way that they were going deeper in their relationship with God and one another, look at the activities they were doing. They were gathering together. They were together in fellowship. Uh, we talk about a church potluck uh, being where we go to uh, have fellowship with one another, and it is. But if all we do is we come together uh, in, a, in a little surface gathering, friends, that's not really Christian fellowship. That's just a gathering. I was at a swim meet last night. Uh, a couple of my kids are, are you know, swimmers. And I, I was in this natatorium till 8.30 at night, uh, crowded together, sitting in chairs. Everybody's wet. They're all pushed together. And I'm going, I'm in fellowship, you know. <laughs> but that isn't fellowship like this. 
uh, I was gathering together with people. We see what they were doing. They were, they were spending time in prayer. You get to know people by talking to them. When we talk to God and when we listen to him, that's fellowship. When we read his word, it says they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's fellowship. They're listening to what God wants in their lives. But when it comes to koinonia, it, it, it's deeper than just gathering together. When we went through the series on the seven churches in Revelation, I use this, this illustration, but it bears repeating here. You recall that the church is not to be a bunch of marbles. Now, the thing about marbles is they have this hard protective shell, and, and this, this is what some think of church. We come together, we bump up against each other, uh, but we keep that hard protective facade up, and we leave just the way we came. This is not koinonia. What, what koinonia is, is being a bunch of grapes. The Bible gives us the picture. It says that we are to abide in Christ as the vine, and as we do so, we, we will grow and develop and will become fruitful. And, and if I were to take these same grapes, and I'm not going to do it, but if I were to squeeze these grapes together, what's going to happen? They're going to burst. They're going to mix together. The juice is all going to run together. Uh, that is the picture that God is calling us to. He, he doesn't say that we are to gather together. What he says is we are to gather together in this sense, whereas we bump up against each other, as our worlds collide, as we get in one another's lives, the richness of our, our lives is interspersed with one another as, as the juice is, is spread together. And we, we see the, the picture that's given here is that of Christ himself. Uh, the same word, this fellowship, it says they were taking meals together and there was the breaking of bread. You'll recall in the Bible, breaking of bread spoke not just of the, the fellowship, the, the agape love feast they would have, but then it also spoke of communion, the Lord's Supper that followed, where they would take the elements, the, the, the wine glass that was used in the Passover, the cup of redemption and the bread, as we saw uh, through the Passover one time that spoke of the Messiah that was being broken, that and that thing that was broken and hidden away and was brought back. And what it's speaking of here is the Lord's table, that communication of what God did for us as he spread his arms wide and he let his blood be shed for us. That is what brings us into fellowship with one another. We celebrated communion last Sunday, and, and this is one of the things we do is we, we come together God doesn't want us just hiding behind a veneer of a shell, but he wants us to come together in koinonia. Another part of that is seen in verses 44 through 45. It says, All those who had believed were together and had all things in common, shared in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, with anyone who might have need. Now, is, is this saying that we're to be socialist? That we're to be communist? That we're to take everything that we have and give it to others? No, that's not what we're reading here. Uh, what you see, the problem with those systems is, first of all, they confiscate your stuff. And they forcefully give it to others. It says here, they were voluntarily choosing to do this. And we're going to see in a moment, they weren't in a commune all living together where they were homeless and penniless. They were going house to house. They still own possessions. What we see here is, again, an overflow of the love of Christ in the lives of these believers. It's been said that you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. 
And what we see here is those who have received the love of God, let that overflow in the lives of others. And many of you do that here at Wayside. Uh, Part of the ministry here at Wayside, we have something called the agape ministry. That's the Greek word for love. Agape, that all-giving, self-sacrificing love. And the agape ministry is where uh, members of Wayside give gifts to the agape fund. It's one of the things you see online that you can give to. You can give to the general fund. You can give to missions, to the facilities fund, and to agape. And the agape ministry is a confidential helps ministry run by a committee in our church where needs, financial needs that people have in our church are shared with this committee. They review the person's need. They review the person's resources. And then we see how as a body, those of you who have, who have shared with those who are in need, you've entrusted those resources to these godly men and women who review the need. And then you give financial help uh, through the church to these families. This is done on a, on a regular basis here at Wayside where the family uh, collectively is helping families within Wayside through the Agape ministry. It's what you heard celebrated last week where 266 of you uh, took angel tree ornaments. And that's where you were able to take and give gifts to families who otherwise would not have it. Now, some would say, but Roger, that's not the meaning of Christmas. It's not all about giving presents, and you're right. Uh, We don't give uh, those gifts because that's how we think Christmas works. But this is how we think Christmas works. Christmas is where we celebrate the birth of the baby of Bethlehem. But it points people to why the baby of Bethlehem came, which is to be the Christ of Calvary. And it's those families that feel forgotten, those children in many cases who are dealing with the mistakes of their parents and things as some have been incarcerated or others are through no fault of their own out of work and things. These are families that the the children are being reminded that they count, that somebody cares for them. And who ultimately cares for them is the Lord. And the message of the gospel is shared through the door that is opened in giving those gifts. It's what's going to happen Tuesday night here at Wayside. We have our Women's Heart of Christmas Banquet. And at the heart of Christmas, it's where we as a church have uh, turned the model upside down, where in the past we would have a, a big fellowship banquet where the ladies of our church could invite friends and neighbors, and they would come together and have a wonderful five-star night, you know, white linen tablecloths, dress up, and invite friends, and they would hear the gospel message. And every year we saw women come to Christ. Those were valuable outreaches. But a few years ago, we said, how can we reach into the community to some of the underserved women of our city? Some that we already have partnerships with through like our teen mops program, the mothers of preschoolers. Uh, We have a fantastic partnership with the Healy Murphy School where women in our church are coming alongside teen women who have become single moms. That's one of the groups that is invited uh, we, have, we work with Church Under the Bridge, and we invite the, the women who are homeless that are out there in the community. They come in here to Wayside, and they sit around a, a, a nice linen tablecloth with a beautiful setting, and they're served a, a nice meal, and they're hearing the gospel story uh, through, through a, a play and the, the teaching of God's word. Uh, we have a, a group of Burmese women coming this year, 20 Burmese women who are here in our city. And again, part of our missionary partnership uh, through the foresters when they were overseas and are now working in San Antonio with this community, these women will be coming. So we're reaching out into the city to these women who feel forgotten and thrown away. And it's a way to say to them, you count. 
and, and, and show them honor. And their kids are coming as well. And we have a, a discipleship and, and program going on for the kids simultaneously. Last year, we saw over 20 of these women come to faith in Christ. And this year, we're praying for even more of this group that is coming. These are some of the ways that through an agape type of love, through a ministry where those who have are sharing with those who do not, that the gospel message is being preached and the doors are being opened. Some of you can remember back to the time before Germany was reunited. There was East and West Germany. There was the the Berlin Wall that separated the two. And the people on the East Berlin side uh, did not like the, the freedom of the Westerners. And before the wall was fully complete, they were finding ways to kind of dig at the West. And one day they dumped a truckload of garbage on the Western side. Now you would think that the, the Western side would retaliate by dumping trash back on the Eastern side. But instead what they did was they got a truckload of, of food and supplies and they stacked it neatly on the East Berlin side. And they put a sign on top of the pile and it said, each one gives what he has. Each one gives what he has. And friends, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to give what we have. What we have received is forgiveness for our sins through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in those times where people treat us poorly, we should respond not in retaliation, hate for hate, but with love. In those times where we have been blessed, we can, we can reach out again and bless others. And that is what we see happening here in the book of Acts. Uh, they were those who had a message of hope and, and they were reaching out. Sometimes that means through material assistance, as we do as a church sometimes. People will come in off the street during the week. And again, we have a, a way of reaching out in a material way to those who, who come in and have a need. We have a food pantry here. We have other uh, gifts that we can give at a smaller level. And so we reach out in a material way, just as you do with friends and neighbors around you. Other times it requires a, a more costly investment, that of our time that of our our life being involved. Uh, That's the time where we get messy. Sometimes we have to get down into the muck and mire of the world with people, and and, and people are not tidy, and as our worlds collide, uh, there's a mess. You know, it's it's easy to do this, to roll down your window at the corner and throw something out at the person who's standing there versus getting involved in somebody's life. I want to remind you that Jesus got down in the muck and the mire with us. He was God, enthroned in heaven above, and he left the glory of heaven to come down into a stable, to be born as a helpless baby surrounded by animals. And, and then he walked the earth, and he went through the limitations that you and I experience and all the suffering and the pain that ultimately happened on the cross in order to save us. As we are in koinonia, as we are in fellowship with one another, God has given us the example through what he did for us. If you think that, that being, what we read here is it says, day by day they were continuing with one another, with one mind in the temple, and the breaking of bread from house to house, and they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. I told you before they weren't in a commune together. They're still in their individual homes. They didn't sell everything they had. They weren't penniless. They weren't in a commune. But what they were doing was being in community. And they recognized that community was not just coming to church on a Sunday morning. 
Friends, if you think that church is a place that you go to, this building, or you think that church is something you mark on your calendar like a soccer practice or a swim meet or some other event that you have, and that is your idea of what church is, you are missing what God wants you to be in. God calls us to be in community with one another, to be in this body of Christ. Yes, God wants us to gather. In fact, he commands it. He tells us in Hebrews 10.25, do not forsake gathering together as is the habit of some. He tells us you need to come together to worship. Remember, as we're reading here, we see that they were in the temple. That's the church building. They were in the temple in verse 46. Verse 42 said they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were listening to sermons. They were studying God's word. They were figuring out how to live and love. But what they were hearing didn't stay in their head. It traveled down into their heart, and it went through their hands and their feet, and they became the body of Christ. They were the church reaching out into a dark and dying world. A moth is drawn to the light. And as people in that day were seeing what was happening with the believers, they were drawn to it. They said, we want what you have. How do we get this? And it tells us the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved in verse 47. You know, we live in a world that is more connected than it's ever been before, don't we? There are so many social media platforms. I can't even keep up with, with the different platforms that are out there. We, we have a communications director, and, and uh, Liz Modell says, you know, Roger, we need you on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And, you know, the list just keeps going, Snapchat. These, and I said, I'll do one thing. I'll do Facebook, okay? Uh, you, you can handle the rest. So if you want to be my friend on Facebook, you can be my friend on Facebook. I post a few things. You'll get to see my son swimming last night if you get on my Facebook page. But as you think in terms of Facebook, um, you know, this, this comic, I think, sums up what we see in society. He had over 2,000 friends on Facebook. I thought he would have more people here. <laughs> it's his funeral. And there's just a handful of people there, not even that. But he had 2,000 friends. You know, we live in a world that is crying out for community. People want to be in relationship. But God says it doesn't come through a little electronic screen. It comes through face-to-face, flesh-on-flesh, life-on-life ministry. It, it, it comes through uh, abiding in Christ and then with one another, this picture of the grapes versus hard-shelled marbles. You know, God designed us for community. You read when he created the very first man. It says in Genesis 2.18, this again, remember, is pre-fall when the world was still perfect. And God looked at Adam and he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. And he gave Adam Eve. And as you look at the world around us, God doesn't want us to try to go through life alone. Friends, the Lone Ranger had Tonto. Nobody is made to be alone. Stu Weber uh, tells a story uh, about the military. If you're somebody who's sitting here saying, yeah, but Roger, I'm tough. I can handle it. I can go through life alone. I don't need anybody. Well, listen to what Stu Weber tells us. He says the year was 1967. This was when the war in Vietnam was, was building to its peak. 
And there was a group of army officers who were being trained. They were the best and the brightest of the, the young officers were going through the ranger school at Fort Benning. And as this class of new recruits uh, came together in this, this, this ranger class, there was a tough battle-tested sergeant, and he stood before them. And he said, the next nine weeks will be the toughest you have ever experienced. Many of you will not make the grade because it's too tough. He told them the training was tough because it was designed to save lives, lives that were being lost in the war. He said he would make them face their greatest fears, overcome their weaknesses, endure past what they dreamed was ever possible. And then the sergeant announced they were about to start with step one. And as he said that, he looked around at the group, and and, and these army officers were fearing the worst. What is step one? What is going to happen, they thought. And then he said, step one is to find a buddy. Step one, the sergeant growled, is to find your ranger buddy. You will stick together. You will never leave each other. You will encourage each other. And as necessary, you will carry each other. You know, that tough, battle-tested sergeant could have been quoting from the Bible. Because in the writing of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he says in Galatians chapter 6, bear one another's burdens. He could have been reading from the Old Testament where King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said in the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them fails, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls, and there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can, if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. I want you to remember that the context of what we're looking at is not just the community of us as believers with one another, but the promise that was given is that God would not leave the apostles, the disciples, the early church alone. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, I am leaving so the paraclete, the helper, the Holy Spirit can come. And we saw last week how the believers were indwelt. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the cord of three. We have God within us, and we have one another to support and encourage. Some of you here have been to Epcot. Now, if you've been to Epcot, uh, what you may not know about it is Epcot actually stands for the Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. You see, Epcot was, Walt Disney was a visionary. He had all kinds of grand, great ideas. And one of the visionary ideas that Walt Disney had is he wanted to create, in his words, a model community. A model community. And Epcot was envisioned by Walt Disney to be a place that would utilize the latest, greatest in modern technology. It was to be a master planned utopia. There would be a model for the whole world to see. There was going to be uh, the, the center and businesses and homes and entertainment. And people were to look at Walt's uh, experimental prototype community of tomorrow and want to copy that in the world. Now, the problem is Walt Disney died before he was able to bring his vision to life. And it was such a grand, complex vision that the folks at Disney didn't know how to implement it. 
Walt had laid the foundation and things had started to go forward. And so what they did was they took his vision, his blueprint for the future, and they turned it into a place where people would come to visit and be entertained. What we're looking at today in the book of Acts is God's blueprint for a model community. And it's not one that God wants us to design so people can come and visit and be entertained and then leave. What he calls us to is a living, breathing, real community. That as others in the world around us see it, they want, they want what we have. That's what we're reading about here today. It's, it's what we as a church uh, exist to be. You know that our vision statement is that Wayside Chapel is a community what we've been talking about. We become a community of believers so that we can love, encourage, support one another, and also so we can then reach out into the community and the world around us. We want people to be rooted in the word. This is devoted to the apostles' teaching, the word of God that we're reading. And it's not just studying the written word, but it's knowing the living word. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We want you to know Jesus Christ in a real and personal way. And it is through our relationship in the living word and what we learn in the written word that we are then able to reach out to the world. To do what Acts 1.8 says, to start locally and go globally. To start in our, our Jerusalem, our San Antonio, our Judea, our, our city of San Antonio and beyond the Bear County regions. Then to go into uh, the far reaches of the world, the uttermost parts of the earth. We are to be reproducing Christ followers, not just those who come and sit, soak, and sour, those who are entertained, those who fill our head, but it is to move through our head and our hearts and into our hands and feet. And we are to be the church starting here and outside of the doors of Wayside Chapel. God gave us his blueprint, and he also gave us his enabling power. He he gave us the gift of his Holy Spirit to indwell us. And now what we need to do is step up and do our part. It starts today by by you saying, I'm not content to be a marble, to just come, to just bump up against somebody. When we have that welcome time, it, it goes beyond just reaching out to the person next to you and saying, hey, how are you doing? Great, good to hear. And turning around before they even finish what they're saying. Why don't you look for ways to go beyond, hey, how are you doing, to, hey, what are you doing this week? Is is there a time we can get together? Maybe for coffee, for a meal, just to sit down and and go deeper into each other's lives, to have koinonia, to have fellowship, for me to really get to know you on, on a deeper, more intimate level. Here in our church, as we grow larger, we, we say that we need to grow smaller. It's why we have adult Bible fellowships. ABFs are our Sunday school classes. These are smaller gatherings uh, where you're able to connect with 20, 30, uh, 40 or more people in some of these mid-sized gatherings. So it's not just people you see in the sanctuary. We have life groups. These are small groups that meet in homes throughout the week. And again, these are smaller groups of six, eight, ten people uh, where you can get together and sit in living rooms with one another and in a, in a more conducive setting where you're not feeling rushed and you can linger and there's, there's not, you know, where you're looking at the back of somebody's head but you're sitting in a circle uh, around a kitchen table or in a living room or something where you can meet with one another. In verse 46 it says, They opened their homes to each other and they ate meals together. 
This, this is a, a setting where you can build relationships. Friends, it doesn't have to be fancy. I picked up a pizza the, the other night for $5.66. You know, you don't have to go large. Well, it was a large pizza. I'm saying you don't have to go to Ruth Chris Steakhouse or something. Uh, just, you know, you don't even have to spend any money. Invite somebody for a play date at a public park. You know, what happens sometimes is we put these barriers in place and we say, well, I don't want to have fellowship with somebody because it's got to be fancy or I've got to impress them. There was a, uh, a woman named Karen Maines, and she confesses this was the situation with her. She was actually a pastor's wife. And she said, I hated having people over to my house. You know why she hated having people over? She said, I'm embarrassed of the furniture I have. It's not fancy. She said, and I hate the mess that has to be cleaned up in order to make my house ready for people to come over. And she recognized that what she was doing was setting a bar to impress people. She said everything changed for her one day when a woman in her church called and said, hey, I'm driving by your neighborhood and I wanted to know if I could come over for a visit. Karen looked around at the house, which was a wreck, and she thought, no way, I'm not going to let this lady come. But then she said, Mrs. Maine says, true hospitality comes before pride. She says, honestly, I reminded myself dismally. Determined, I welcomed the woman with warmth. I invited her into the unsightly rooms, and I refused to embarrass her or me with apologies. I consciously let go of my pride. As this other woman entered her home, uh, Karen says that her visitor's response amazed her. Because this woman looked around at the wreck of the house. And she said to her, I used to think you were perfect. But now I think we can be friends. <laughs> Once the wall came down, that facade that everything was perfect. When, when she moved beyond this relationship, suddenly there was able to be a real relationship. Now, when you go home today, don't say, Pastor Roger said I don't have to clean the house. That's not, <laughs> that's not the application from the sermon. But this is the application right here. What I want you to hear is it's not our skill as housekeepers, as cooks, as being the, the person who wins yard of the month and has the best-looking lawn in the neighborhood. It's not about being the hostess with the mostess. That is not what people are looking for. What makes people feel welcome and want to be around us is fellowship. Fellowship. Friends, food and the setting are secondary. Have you ever read the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10? Do you remember what happened? Martha was running around trying to make everything just great. And Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha, why are you worried and bothered about so many things? He said, it's not the food. It's not the setting. Sit down. Have fellowship with me. I want you to spend time with me. What impresses others is the care that we show for them. And as others see it, they will want what we have. They will be drawn to it. And what we have, friends, is the life-changing message of the gospel. What a dead and dying world needs. Are we willing to be those who will step out and be the church, be the body of Christ? Let me end with this illustration. It's from 1976. And the setting was the Special Olympics. It took place in Spokane, Washington. There, there were nine 
contestants running this particular race. They were all physically or mentally challenged. And as they lined up for the race, uh, the gun was about to start. And as it did, the contestants started out, not exactly in a dash, but with a relish to run the race, with, with a desire to finish and even win. And as, as these contestants were running around the track, one of them, who was at the back of the pack, stumbled and tripped and fell onto the track. Now, some of the others were, were just running, and, but there were two that were near him who, who heard him fall, and then this, this young man started crying. And these, these two that were ahead were moving, and, and they slowed down, and they looked back, and they could see this, this one that was down on the track. And, and, and they thought about keep, we, we want to win, and, but they, they could see he needed help. And so these two came back to the individual. And they, they came and they leaned over him and they said, are you okay? And they, they rolled him over and this, this young man sits up and he's crying. And they looked at him, they dusted him off, they helped him to his feet. And then they linked arms with him, one on each side. And, and the three of them then walked around the rest of the track. And as they crossed the finish line of, of the racetrack, the, the stadium erupted in applause. The people stood on their feet for several minutes clapping. Nobody remembers to this day who crossed the finish line first, who the winner of the race was. But they are still to this day talking about the group that finished the race together. And friends, that is the picture that God has for us today. The world tells us to win. The world tells us as individuals to to crush the competition, to leave everybody behind, that it's all about me, myself, and I. And what God says is it's all about community. It's all about us coming together as brothers and sisters in Christ and recognizing there are people that are down in the dirt. There are people who are hurt. There are people who are wounded. And as a church or an individual believer, I want to tell you, we are frail and fallen people ourselves. We're not going to be perfect. We're going to make mistakes. But what God calls on us to do is to be those who are willing to reach down, to dust somebody off, to help them to their feet and lock arms with them, and as believers in community, to finish the race together. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you not only for your word that is written, your instruction book for us on how to live, But, Lord God, we thank you for your living word, your son, Jesus, who went beyond telling us what we need to do to showing us, to being our model, our example. We thank you, God, that you were willing to leave your glory in heaven, to humble yourself, to become that helpless baby at Bethlehem, so that you could ultimately become the Christ of Calvary, our Savior. Lord God, as those who have found the way home, who have found the word who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let no one come to the Father but through me. Let us be, especially during this season, where people are looking around and saying, what is this Christmas stuff really all about? Father, may we show them through real and authentic community, as Christians who come together, May we be those, Father, who model what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And may we reflect your love to a world that needs to see that light. Father, I thank you for this church. We're not perfect, 
But, Father, I see so many signs of authentic Christian community here, marks of men and women who are saying, I want to be what you call us to be. I thank you, Lord, for this church. So, Father, help us to be the church. It's not just about gathering here this morning in the doors of this building, but you call us to go out into the world and show the world what the church really is. May we do that as you send us out with your love and grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.